Welcome to the new writing series. Um, today we have David Schneiderman reading, and to introduce David Schneiderman, we have a wonderful MFA fiction writer, Amy Forrest. Hello. David Schneiderman is a multimedia artist and writer, and the author or editor of eight print and audio works including the novels Drain and Abecedarium, and the blank novel entitled Blank, a Novel, which contains only chapter titles over the course of 206 pages. One reviewer described his work as the poetic stew-slash-spew of an illegitimate son of William Burroughs and Kathy Acker in a 21st century Midwest comics reverie. Another says, I'm not even sure if this guy actually writes sentences. <laughs> no good old-fashioned sentence could possibly contain the crazed linguistic feats and actions packed into every moment, every movement of Schneiderman's language. When asked who has most influenced his writing, he says, Vincent Price is the voice at the close of Michael Jackson's thriller, because that is some scary shit. When asked what has most influenced his writing, he says books, piles of unread books, all asking, nay, begging to be dismantled with a chainsaw. He dismantles books with a regular saw, too, which you can see him do in a YouTube video on his new channel called Busted Books. He tired of simply discussing deconstruction and decided to deconstruct him bu books himself, literally, by sawing them in half, by boiling them with noodles, by sloshing them in the waters of Lake Michigan. He is director of Lake Forest College Press and Now Books, where he co-edits the series The And Now Awards, the best innovative writing. He also directs the NEH-funded Virtual Burnham Initiative. Please join me in welcoming David Schneiderman. Thank you. Um, my first piece is called No Signal, and it lasts about three minutes and 45 seconds. <laughs> no, I don't think you want to say that. Oh, now it's not going to start again. Okay, here we go. This is my dog, Cuddles. No, I think this might be Anna Joy's dog. So I, I just want to say how lucky you are to have a new writing series like this. This is a wonderful thing. I saw the poster I've followed online, the, the great people that you have here. And uh, if you haven't thanked Anna Joy Springer for organizing all of this, you should often, and we should all do that now by clapping wildly. She's not even here to receive the applause. All right. So I want to take you through a kind of selection of the various things that I do and give you a sense of this. Since that great introduction alluded to uh, videos, let me show you a trailer. This is kind of a thing, a thing that's been happening recently. You can hear me without the microphone, right? Pretty loud. Um, do I need to speak in the mic for the recording purposes? No. Okay. Uh, book trailers. So I will show you the book trailer for my novel, Blank, which is in fact a blank novel. And I'll read you from it in a little while. Let's see. Now I've got to get this over here. And this is like the... I'm sort of doing this backwards off screen. You know what happened? Here we go.
So if you have a book, you have to have a book trailer. How many people are maybe even mildly offended by that? Maybe not offended is the wrong word, but how many people don't like seeing books cut up? It's a little hard. Good. Yeah, we'll maybe talk about what makes that hard. So one of the things I've been doing over the course of my career is investigating ideas of authorship and genius and authenticity. I, I grew up probably like many of you reading great American classics and being schooled in this idea. I'm going to move away from the light of that projector that the, the writer is a kind of romantic figure, someone who channels, who says something that only the writer can say and puts it into a text, and it's your job to interpret that text. That comes from Blake and Wordsworth and Coleridge. We all walk in a field of dandelions, uh, and then I go home and smoke opium and write a poem about it, and you can't do that because you, you don't have a special something. I don't believe in that at all, and I've become increasingly kind of skeptical of that, which is one of the things that the And Now organization is about, Anna Joy and Amina Kane are bringing the And Now conference here next fall. So if you're around in October, you're going to see a lot of cool writers and artists coming to talk about these different issues. About five years ago, I uh, brought a mixed-media artist named DJ Spooky to Lake Forest College. He was in Chicago to do a run at the Museum of Contemporary Art where he took D.W. Griffith's film, Birth of a Nation. Has anyone heard of this? You may not have watched it. It's very long. Right. Sort of painful to watch. It's an early cinema classic that does a lot of things like introducing cameos and pull-away shots. But it's basically about the Ku Klux Klan. It's sort of a you know, white post-Civil War um, version of uh, anti-reconstruction. And what Spooky did was a live remix of it on three different screens, taking the original film, manipulating it, and doing a new soundtrack. When he came to Lake Forest College, where I teach, he uh, said to me, we had 10 minutes before we went on, help me put stickers on these CDs. This is still the era of CDs. And everybody who came to his performance got a free CD. His idea was that this is the gift economy, right? You want people to buy your books, and mine are for sale here, but you also want to give people things. And so I then began recording, inspired by that. And I'm going to play a little bit from my CD called Memorials to Future Catastrophes. I'll play you the intro, which says something about what I've just been talking about. You can decide what it says. It's just 38 seconds. Recorded 
Since we're getting a lot of feedback, which is not part of the original recording, maybe I won't play. We'll play another one in a little while. But let me read some things for you. We'll just shut that. Okay. And can we turn off the projector, maybe? Sorry. Okay. This is something you can do at home also. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. How many people have read, seen the Disney movie, you know something about Alice? Saw that horrible Tim Burton version from last year? Mm-hmm. Anybody liked it? Anybody like it? No. Not I, well. I thought it was fun. It took all the whimsy and fun out of it. The Alice's Adventures in Wonderland auto-summarized to 85 words. You can do that in Microsoft Word. You take a text, you put it in, tools, auto-summarize. Alice's Adventures, Alice's Right Foot Esquire, with Alice's Love, Poor Alice, I suppose so, said Alice. Alice felt dreadfully puzzled. Alice sighed wearily. Alice asked. Alice ventured to ask. Alice was silent. Yes, shouted Alice. What for, said Alice. Alice thought to herself. No, said Alice. Alice asked. Alice went on eagerly. No, indeed, said Alice. I never thought about it, said Alice. Alice was thoroughly puzzled. Alice whispered to the griffin. Alice's evidence. Nothing, said Alice. Everybody looked at Alice. I won't, said Alice. 85 words. How many of you use this Facebook thing? Facebook. That's it, really? Some of you want to raise your hand? These people here? No Facebook? You do it, but you don't want to be identified? Okay. That's it. I'm not quite ashamed of it, but... You might remember some years ago, there was this sort of Facebook meme going around where everybody would be... Maybe they still do this playing Mafia Wars and saying, you, you know, this person killed four zombies and zombie killers or scored this amount in this game. So this is about those quizzes in those games. It's called, David Schneiderman took the quiz. David Schneiderman took the quiz. David Schneiderman played the game. David Schneiderman took the what psychedelic era pop song crossed with a washed up sci-fi character are you? (laughs) Answer, tomorrow never knows Mr. Spock. (laughs) David Schneiderman took the what mother sauce of classical French cuisine are you crossed with a decadent Roman emperor? Answer, bechamel Nero. (laughs) David Schneiderman took the quiz. David Schneiderman played the what high school subject crossed with a native god are you when you first wake up after an all-night bender? Answer, Quetzalcoatl trigonometry. David Schneiderman incurred the wrath of the undead. David Schneiderman took the what kind of sandwich crossed with a battle from the Seven Years' War are you? Answer, Battle of the Plains of Abraham Vegan Club. David Schneiderman came into some money. Aside, not true. David Schneiderman took the how many Facebook requests are you ignoring game? Answer, all of them. David Schneiderman unfriended. 
David Schneiderman played the game, what unholy love child of a serial killer and doctor of the Catholic Church are you? Answer, Jeffrey, be the venerable Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer, one person who knows. Thank God you're in this audience. I need you. David Schneiderman played the guess which American celebrity you'd most like to kill in a fight with totem animals, roosters, bunnies with shivs, etc. David scored 2,321 points by training Pikachu to stab Rush Limbaugh with a mirror shard. <laughs> David Schneiderman took the quiz. What two anagrams of Barack Hussein Obama best describes your feelings on the current monetary crisis, as advertised at the front of the phone book? Answer, A-A-A, basic broken mush, and A-A-A, kebab richness moo. David Schneiderman took Please. Prose poem. The baby. The baby, the baby flies through the air as you toss her high above the artificial lake. The bubbles floating across a concourse of sunset. Her eyes, blue puddles, topaz touched by the end of a dark matchstick. Orange Neanderthal hair crossed along the curve of your spine as you throw her, again, into the wind. She laughs, at first tentatively, then with abandon. She laughs, at first tentatively, then with abandon. She claps, her fingers articulate. She laughs, the hands of a clock coming together, in wind, in time to the music. The baby, the baby throws you into the air, turns it back on you, smacks your gums and rubs your cheeks and tickles your chin as you fly. Again, you clap, you wave, you laugh. Again, the bubbles, obnubilated orbs, silver shivers, sunburst light show, dreamy red streaks. You laugh, the baby. You smile, the baby. You spit up, the baby. Again, the baby. You spit up, the baby. I have a... Um... I wrote that. I was tossing one of my two daughters in the air. She doesn't have red hair, but for a while, I have a three-and-a-half-year-old and I just turned five-year-old. And you may remember this, but for a while there were some reports that people with red hair, perhaps, is it natural? Do you mind if I ask you? You red hair. So you're a perfect candidate here. That may be a Neanderthal gene, that there was some evidence that Neanderthal man procreated with Cro-Magnon and that this is what's passed along. This has since perhaps been disproven. This is not the best cold open when you're at the park with your daughter and there's another child with red hair and you say to the mother who you've never met before, your child may have Neanderthal genes. Doesn't work very well as I learned. Beware. Let's see. Okay, I'm gonna read a little bit from my novel Drain from Northwestern University Press from last summer. I was at a panel in Chicago called Printer's Row, which is a big event in the publishing community there every summer, sponsored by the Chicago Tribune. It was on indie publishing in Chicago. I was with three other well-known Chicago literary figures, and someone said to me right before the panel began, the book had just come out. Sounds like a great book. What's it about? He had been flipping through it. I said, this is my canned speech. It's about a near future where Lake Michigan empties of water. And a whole bunch of disenfranchised people who worship a giant worm that's kind of like an end of times figure. And they believe the worm has removed all the water from Lake Michigan, move in. 
After a period of years, a planned community corporation moves in, and it's about the conflict between that planned community corporation and these cultist end-of-the-world settlers. And the gentleman looked at me, and he said, that sounds wonderful. Is it fiction? <laughs> I kid you not. I could not make that up. Okay, so there's two different narrators. One narrator is a character named, come on in, uh, Washington Jefferson Lincoln Key, protagonist, I should say, and he works for this planned community corporation, which is called the Quadrilateral Commission. The rest of the book is narrated from a kind of punk terrorist who goes by the name of Dial-Up Networking. Maybe some of you, you're probably too young to even remember that. <laughs> when we used to have modems, we would have to plug them into the wall and turn on the computer, and then we get a series of sounds like, something like that, right? Which meant you were online. Uh, she has a gang that works for her, kind of these punk terrorists, and there's three of them, and their names are None, Nothing, and Number. And a few years ago, I guess I wrote this in around 2004, there was an artist in the Netherlands who had invented a machine, an art object, where you fed it food and it processed the food and produced feces. I don't know if anyone remembers this, right? So this is kind of the opposite of that, right? And uh, the Blackout Angels, which is dial-up networking her terrorist band, are having a press conference to gain support for their cause, which is to fight this planned community corporation. They were children of this corporation. They grew up in these towns, and now there we go. In invention. The Blackout Angels simply love to rape darlings. We practice a brand of extreme physicality. Picture the Jesuits never knocking. They burst into convenience stores without shirts and shoes. Riot squads overturning the slushy machine. Weighed down by crosses and cheap gold lame habits. They barge into your condo, unplug your microwave, spit into your burnt popcorn. They'll goose step into a crowded stadium, throw drunk Jansenists out on their arses, and toss mint julep Molotov cocktails spiked with battery acid. And we're a thousand times more physical. We've constructed a machine that demonstrates our tendencies. Snarling cracks and widgets, flying iron filings, rusted spark flashes characterize Dr. Zebediah Duger's amazed-atastic, self-conflagrating shithole wonder machine, named after the leader of the quadrilateral corporation, Dr. Zebediah Duger. My blackout angel called Number, his white boy afro teased to gargantuan proportion, is the prime mover of this particular project. Ladies and gentlemen, blackout angels at large, sympathetic funding agencies from the accursed quadrilateral bourgeoisie, when I remove this protective blanket, your sight will at first serve no discernible purpose. Do not be alarmed. Rather, let your nose astound and delight you with the putrid strink, stink that we have successfully replicated at great cost to several of our most double, secret, operatives. Whoosh! The shithole wonder machine announces itself in a series of odd tone knocks and rustling leaves snapping cold gray sobbing afternoon olfactory buzz. Vacuum sucking stench of new age massage parlors. Plunge pools drained by a single hose channeling the sum of human experience into a wash of cilia caked with Cenozoic mucus. Brimstone flavored gatling gun residue in a civil war aftershock. Pungent skunkweed in the fermented mash of mason jars. Mold covered molasses is soaked in turpentine under unearthed after 100 years buried six feet under a two-way radio 
This is vintage shit, Number proclaims in his dapper lab coat, still sporting his bandolier. Sniff, my pretties, in a whole new world flowers before us. Let me demonstrate the uh, proclivities of this particular fundamental fundament machine. He lifts a wet wad of steaming uncut feces with a rubber glove and then squeezes it just so. The mass forms ridges and bumping furrows as if a comb made from human bicuspids pushes through a mound of rotten compost. We gasp for breath as a million microscopic toxins escape into the air, pollinating the bland horizon, the colorless, textureless air of your hometown. Nearly 20,000 quadrilateral settlers embossed on a grid of perfectly ordered streets and 10-year interest-only mortgages with low points offered to qualified buyers. Courier envelopes filled with welcome wagon cleaning powers run along the inseam of your trousers to wash out the fireplace smell etched deep into your shag rug. The air around the shithole wonder machine reveals a mix of fire and feces, a disclosure of brilliant odor at the fusion of earth and flame. The entire metal contraption shakes excitedly. Comrades, proclaims Number, this lump of shit will be taken into the ass of the machine like an especially unpleasant vinegar enema, and after processing in a reverse, return to its original state. A savory meal of radioactive seed white asparagus, thick sirloin gristle cube sautéed in port wine sauce, aluminum flambe flavored with union-made polycarbonate, and for dessert, pre-processed snack-like amalgamate bar in the shape of a chocolate dung beetle peppered with cellophane nougat. The machine's ferocious anus snaps to life of a gear-grinding, earth-moving monster drill crushing diamonds into a thick paste of glittering stink while the processed food flushes itself in reverse up the machine's asshole with a soft farting whoosh. White noise freakouts turn to noxious gas as the foodstuff sluice backward and upward through the intestinal tract. Low groaning waves crumble across our stomachs and even number taps his steel-toed jackboot uncomfortably against the cement floor. Into the belly, the sound of acid leaking from old batteries suspends over seething lava rocks hot from igneous afterbirth. The reconstruction of the meal is a reaffirmation against your ears as the asparagus reasserts its bristling tip along the esophagus of your earlobe. Gristle cubes go tough on outside leather hides, then soft and fleshy on the inside with tender screens of knife wounds cut horizontal across the wrist, submerged in a bubbling baptismal of lemon juice, washing the helix of the ear, cupping the slats of aluminum flambe and folding up the backs of the throat, then the bottom of the conca and the anti-helix of the ear until the snack bar nougat crinkles like plastic wrap over the external auditory canal of the teeth and the gums, rubbing its sugary loam on the outside of the giant lips that cover the local town until the machine eats only what we feed it, producing shit-to-order excrement. In this way, my revolutionary brethren, we can determine the composition of any consumptive byproduct and its waste material in any order, starting with bullshit and returning it to the primal state in which quadrilateral makes us eat. Number waits for applause before the splendor of the reconstructed meal, and hearing none, grabs the arms of the nearest reporter, whose bloody fingers tickle the snarling teeth rimming the machine's steel-reinforced asshole. Thank you. This is an enormous bottle of water. Okay, some other things. So, some people have called this book dense and unreadable. 
you can be the judge of that, I suppose, if you want to look through it. So, a few months ago, I came out with another book you saw the trailer for, Blank, which is indeed primarily a blank novel. There are chapter titles, and so I'm going to read the book for you now. Uh, the book is published by Jaded Ida's Press, which is also doing the next book from Anna Joy Springer, The Vicious Red Relic, Love, which is coming out within the next few months. One of the things that Jaded Ibis does is it's a full-spectrum publisher. So the idea being there's an e-book, there will be a Kindle version of this. Anybody read on a Kindle or an iPad? I just wanted so you could get this. And how many times would you sort of have to move your finger down until you get to the next chapter title? It comes out in this commercial edition, which is also for sale over here. It'll come out in a color edition. The only thing I'm going to put in color, I think, is the copyright notice. <laughs> And then it will come out in a fine art edition, which costs $7,500. It's encased in plaster, and you have to smash the plaster one time to get to a wooden box, which I'm hoping will have Victorian padlocks on it, the sort of you know, ring of skeleton keys. And you have to open the locks to get to the wooden box. And inside the box is the book with a bamboo flash drive that contains tracks from the aforementioned DJ Spooky. He remixed some of Box Goldberg variations and donated them to the project. And so, if you have $7,500, I'll be happy to take your credit card. Remember to give me the three-digit code on the back, please. <laughs> uh, the book is blank, but it, it, some other meanings have come about. Anna Joy and I were speaking earlier. In some ways, uh, my experience of being a parent and being the chair of the department and running and now books keeps me very busy with not as much time to write as I had when I was younger. So maybe that's why I'm writing a, a blank book. There's more to it. <laughs> Uh, DJ Spooky is running an art center in the Pacific island of Vanuatu, where there's a kind of disappearing indigenous culture, and there's a 400-acre artist colony that he's helping to set up. And half the proceeds from this book go to support that endeavor to help interact with the indigenous arts culture there and stop it from being, you know, completely become a tourist attraction. So in some ways, the blankness of those people, their own native culture being eliminated, is coded into the text as well. All right, so blank. Chapter one, a character. Chapter two, another character. Chapter three, they meet. Chapter four, an obstacle. <laughs> Chapter five, they fall in love. <laughs> Chapter six, they argue. You may be so that time. Chapter seven, more obstacles. Chapter 8, they fall apart. Chapter 9, a character broods. <laughs> Chapter 10, another character responds. Chapter 11, a character turns inward to the mind. <laughs> Chapter 12, 
another character turns outward to the body. Chapter 13, they encounter an animal. <laughs> Chapter 14, they reunite. Very touching. <laughs> Chapter 15, a character sickens. <laughs> Chapter 16, another character worries. Chapter 17, character dies. Chapter 18, you die. <laughs> Chapter 19, I die. Chapter 20, this book. Thank you very much. couple more things. All right, so one thing I found in doing readings over the years, if you're like me, you might have a very short attention span. How many people have a hard time sitting through readings aside from this one? It's okay to admit it, right? If you don't want your professors to see, you can kind of... I'm not Okay. Now everybody's hands are up. Even though I love literature and I love art, uh, I, ha I just cannot really sit through anything. The older I get, the worse it gets. My mind is wandering. I write my own things, I want to check my email, I could be Twittering, I have all these things I need to be doing, maybe you're doing the same thing. And so, even really good writers sometimes are not good performers of their work, and the thing that I hate is you can't, especially when I maybe know the person, I can't say boo, or throw a tomato, or do something to break, I can't even leave sometimes. So, I, I'm trying to help come up with a solution to that. You're going to help with that. I have a rope. <laughs> And what we're going to do is thread this rope through the audience. And we put the end of it down here. So what you need to do now is to react to what I read. And in order for you to do that, I'm going to clip the rope to my belt. 
<laughs> I gotta find a piece of it. I've done this a number of times, and it's always a little different. <laughs> Good. Okay. So I'm gonna read, and you read. You know, you react. You can work together. Every audience is a little different. You got to kind of channel your collective energy. You could do nothing, but then you've wasted your opportunity, right? <laughs> where you can pull and maybe see what happens. I'll pull back though. <laughs> You remember that auto summary thing I did with Alice in Wonderland? If you do a book like Alice in Wonderland, you get a lot of lines where Alice appears. It's like a cloud tag. But if you do it with a play, you get, for the most part, the names of the characters, right? Because those are the things that are most prevalent. So this is The Importance of Being Earnest. A trivial comedy for serious people. I figured you were the serious people by Oscar Wilde. Auto summarized to 99 words plus the addition of man-eating cannibals. <laughs> okay, ready? Algernon, 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 fresh meat. Algernon, 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 Jack, me cannibal. Algernon, Jack, Algernon, Jack, Algernon, Jack, Algernon, Jack, Algernon, Jack. Dried strips of jerky. Cecily, 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 for later. Cecily, 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 cold winter. Cecily, 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 for all of us. Cecily, together. So on a serious note, I was a visiting artist at the University of Central Arkansas last spring for a few days. And I did that for the first time in a stadium auditorium of about 150 seats. And I threaded through the crowd. You'll notice I'm a little out of breath, which is part of the idea. And I'll read a poem in a minute, it's partially out of breath. And I was getting pulled and I immediately knew the, the, the anger of this audience was gonna pull me entirely up the thing. So there I was, kind of fighting a little bit at the beginning. I gave in and I jumped over the first set of seats and I'm being threaded through and I come face to face with the chair of their very large English department. <laughs> Guy looks to be about 50, mild-mannered medievalist, bald on the top, hair back like this, thinks about Chaucer all day long, was just there out of the goodness of his heart being the chair, quiet, Never bothered anybody, didn't make a lot of direct eye contact, except for now. As he's pulling me and he's three inches from me, 
fire in this man's eyes, like flames, anger, craziness, serial killer eyes. And I went back and forth, and finally his will, his medieval will of sin and punishment and damnation overpowered me, and I let him pull me up to the next row. And all everyone talked about for the next two days is how I'd like release the animal in this guy. Even on the tennis court, he was sort of quiet and polite. He didn't even run. He didn't make an effort. And now uh, he was seriously pissed off. And then I think he tried to fire everybody. No, I don't know what happened. Okay. Let's see. I've got another one for you. Okay, so remember, I'm partially out of breath, so that will make this seem a little better for you. How many people saw that movie, The Aviator, that Howard Hughes a few years ago, or know who Howard Hughes is, or have heard of his boat, The Spruce Goose, <laughs> used to be in Los Angeles. The Spruce Goose was a giant wooden airplane boat that Howard Hughes, the aviator and filmmaker, who later became a kind of crazy germaphobe, Leonardo DiCaprio played him in this movie. Uh, he built as a troop transport for World War II, but it was always ridiculous. It was made of wood, it was a, a, a boat that would take off in the water, it only flew once for about 40 seconds, and for years it was moored next to the Queen Mary in L.A., and now I think it's somewhere in the upper northwest they've moved it. So people used to say to him, that thing will never fly, and the boat was called the Spruce Goose. That thing will never fly. The Spruce Goose is responsible for global warming. The Spruce Goose is always the dominant partner. The Spruce Goose is all in your mind. The Spruce Goose is sponsored by Eli Lilly. The Spruce Goose is the Spruce Goose is the Spruce Goose. The Spruce Goose is a fair-weather friend. The Spruce Goose is armed with pepper spray. The Spruce Goose is for nuclear power. The Spruce Goose is not germaphobic. The Spruce Goose is agoraphobic. The Spruce Goose is chock full of vitamins and nutrients. The Spruce Goose is tired of bad relationships. The Spruce Goose is looking for a good diet pill. The Spruce Goose is no longer shaving under its arms. The Spruce Goose is afraid of Google Earth. The Spruce Goose is boycotting the London Olympics. The Spruce Goose is sick of the friendly skies. The Spruce Goose is sure no one cares. The Spruce Goose is running for president. The Spruce Goose is voting early and often. The Spruce Goose is manipulating your chi. The Spruce Goose is affectionate like Cuddles, my puppy dog. The Spruce Goose is part of a new media paradigm. The Spruce Goose is vlogging about its own shortcomings. The Spruce Goose is dousing your french fries in salt. The Spruce Goose is moving at the speed of wood. The Spruce Goose is crazy for boy bands. The Spruce Goose is fragmenting history. The Spruce Goose is actualizing the rainforest. The Spruce Goose is an environment Mess. The Spruce Goose is a poor communicator. The Spruce Goose is illegally dumping in the river. The Spruce Goose is up on cement blocks in your front yard. The Spruce Goose is forever 21. <laughs> I will now take comments and questions. Yes. Yeah, the Spruce Goose is this giant boat, this giant wooden boat that he wanted to build. It was supposed to transport troops during World War II, but it only flew one time for 40 seconds. It was an enormous boat, and it was kind of, you know, a boondoggle, something that would never work, a crazy dream of a madman. When you wrote that list that you just read, yeah. was that just, like, stuff that popped into your head, or did, was it a flarf thing? Uh, it was not a flarf thing, but I could see why you would ask that, right? Flarf, there's a... Does anyone not know what FLARF is? I guess that's a bad way to ask it. Okay, so FLARF is when you create poetry often by 
using search techniques from Google, for instance. So you might Google something, and then you're uh, any sort of search being the results you use to create the poetry. That's one method of Clark. It's considered to be like pulling from all these different media outlets, all these different channels, to create something that seems to be a kind of random comment on the noise of our society. That was not like this, in fact, uh, but I am a scholar of William S. Burroughs. I don't know if anyone's read Naked Lunch or any of those books. He did a lot of cut-up work over the years, cutting with scissors into his own work. I've published quite a bit on him. And for years, I kept cut-up notebooks. And at some point, it just clicked, and I kind of began to write like that. Right? I don't really do cut-ups anymore. And if you listen to what I was doing, Drain, there's a lot of images that only sort of seem to go. They're metonyms. They're metonymic image. I don't work too much with metaphors. My work isn't really symbolic. I just juxtapose things that don't seem to go or kind of go with other things and create a sort of feeling from there. So just from doing it so long, that's sort of the natural, quote-unquote, way that I write. It's a good question. What else? Ask me anything. Yes? I think it's both. There was a, a critic in the mid, early to mid part of the 20th century named Vladimir Prop, P-R-O-P-P, a Russian formalist, and he wrote a book called The Morphology of the Russian Folktale. It's not a book you necessarily need to read, but you might be interested in the premise, which is that he studied all of these Russian folktales and extracted the 31 actions that all of these folktales have within them. Not each folktale has all 31, but you could draw from these elements and come up with the basic structure of a folktale. It's not a lot different from Joseph Campbell and the hero monument, you know, that uh, George Lucas was so fond of and based Star Wars on, right? In the Odyssey, Ulysses descends into hell, right, to visit his mother and to speak with Achilles. In Star Wars, Luke Skywalker goes to the swamp planet, trains with Yoda, and, you know, kind of fights that ghostly Darth Vader in the cave, and the Empire strikes back. In the same basic structure, you could do a lot of structural analysis of that. So Prop has things like the hero leaves home, the hero encounters an obstacle, the hero meets a magic animal, right? Little Red Riding Hood, an animal, maybe not a magic animal in that case, and these versions of it. So I was thinking of the structural components of a lot of contemporary publishing. Not necessarily the independent literary world that I operate in, although to a certain extent, but your Harlequin romance, your thriller by Janet Ivanovich, you know, murder mystery, these, the Stephen King novel. They're all different, but they're all the same. And so by raising the discourse a little bit to that meta level and making these statements which aren't necessarily true to everything that you read, but ring uh, enough kind of on this level to make you think about the structure, that's where it gets its satirical edge from. Yes, sir? And people buy it? People buy it? Are you going to buy it? <laughs> you look like people to me. It's only $10. For you, eight. Um, there, someone just sent me a link that there is a bestseller now, a self-published bestseller that's a blank book called Everything Men Think About Aside from Sex. <laughs> but it's not presented as a blank book. It's not called blank. You buy it from Amazon thinking, I don't know who would buy this to begin with. Uh, oh, and it's blank, right? There was another one years ago. Everything Men Know About Women. Right? This is explicitly positioned as a book that is not hiding its own blankness. Some of the discussion online, if you go to the website HTML Giant, there's been a few pieces about this, is, well, what is this? Because someone wrote and said that she bought the book at the uh, National Writers Conference, AWP, and then got to her hotel room and was set to find that it was blank. But it's not shrink wrap. 
right? It's on a table where, you know, a crazy woman, the publisher, is sort of saying, here's a book, and it's blank. I'm not really sure how that would happen. I think that's a bit of a rhetorical position. And then other people were like, angry, right? I gave a reading at Central Michigan University last fall. I was on a, a little bit of a book tour, and I had gone to Notre Dame and then up there. And I just described the book. I didn't even read from it. And afterward, I heard some graduate students talking, and I went over, and they got real quiet. <laughs> and the other one said, well, Billy was just saying some, some shit about your book. <laughs> well, Billy was, Billy's getting real quiet now. Billy was saying that no one will publish his novel, but people will publish your blank novel. And that doesn't seem fair to them. Right? But part of this is about, and when I told my wife, she's like, Billy, better reread his novel. It probably sucks, right? <laughs> Note, I changed the names to protect the real world. Part of this is about authorship, right? I've had a small level of success in the world of independent publishing. I don't think I could have published a book like Blank years ago. Uh, I don't think it would have been as funny, but because in a really, really tiny way, some people know the type of work I do, it's... A little bit like a Marcel Duchamp exercise, right? Putting a mustache on the Mona Lisa, sticking a fountain in an art gallery, and cut, you know, or a, a urinal, and calling it a fountain, right? Putting a snow shovel and giving it the title In Advance of the Broken Arm. So the, the, the balance here is that I don't mean this to be a reauthorization of my authorial identity, like, look how clever I am. I really do mean it to be a kind of criticism of authorship or the ideas of the author with the capital A and the ego of writing. But here I am joking and presenting it to you. So there's sort of a, there's a fine line, and I'm not entirely sure how to walk it. I am working on a sequel, which is called, <laughs> it, it would be funny if it was just more blank. Oh, some of the things people said online is like, there shouldn't be chapter titles. That ruins it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it shouldn't be all blank. But on the back, there's a serious author photo. I'm what am I looking at? Something off to the side. <laughs> so the sequel is going to be a book called Sick, I think. S-I-C, Latin, as written, right? And what I've been doing recently is a project that I was calling The Undeath of the Author. I've been publishing work from before the copyright period, pre-1923, by other people that you would recognize with my name on it. So the prologue to the Canterbury Tales, in the middle of it, by me. Clearly not by me, right? But, with my, but I've taken authorization for it. After 1923, well, now copyright law applies. So then I take things like Wikipedia pages, Transportation Security Administration accounts, and Supreme Court pages government documents that are in the public domain, and some other things. And it will be an examination of the limits of what you can do as an author and the intertwining of copyright and authorship. The fine art edition of that book, which will hopefully cost like $20,000, maybe <laughs> the $7,500 uh, book of steel, will literally make you sick in a way that I can't tell you yet. But if you read the book, you will become ill. <laughs> yeah, so get one of those. Right? That's right, 20, maybe be 40, maybe it's not yet. It depends, yeah. What else do you want to know? Yes? What does it say about the reader? Which one? If you read a book that makes you sick? No, I mean, what is your relationship with your reader when you're writing a book like blank? I think that's interesting because some people find it to be extremely aggressive, like an aggressive sort of critique of readers. Like, readers are stupid, or you're stupid, or I don't like you readers. And when I was younger and began doing public readings, my, my work, like Drain, is full of illusions and very fast. And even though I read that quickly and deliberately so, I used to read even more quickly. Like, and if you didn't get it, you know, fuck you. It was a little bit of that punk aesthetic. And I guess I revised that a little bit. Um, to dial things back, although many of the reviews for this book call the book sort of 
you know, unreadable, but that's good. That's its virtue. That's what the American Book Review reviews. So when I was writing blank, it certainly wasn't a condemnation of the reader. It was more of meant, and that doesn't mean anything, to be a comment on publishing itself. Mm -hmm. But since the meaning comes from the reader, I very much believe that, like Roland Barthes wrote in The Death of the Author, right? It comes from the reader, or Michel Foucault in the author function, right? You don't really know the author, you just have, like, you don't really know me. I'm giving you a public performance right now. This isn't anything like the way that I am. There is no essential me, so to speak. Uh, it's not really about you decoding my message, but it is, I guess, in your own way, possibly about your limits of readership, and that's what a lot of the online discussions are about. What are you, how far are you willing to go? Is it a joke? Is it a John Cage-like art statement? You know, John Cage did four minutes and 33 seconds where that's the length of his performance at the piano and he doesn't play anything. The audience just sits there, right? And then he shuts the piano and that's it. That's the, that's the thing, right? So I think it's not meant out of a kind of animosity toward readers. I love readers. I need readers. But it has something to do about publishing, about the disappearance of books as objects. That's why the trailer, right? The trailer is about cutting up books that exist, pulping them, and making the blank pages from that process book. You probably, and the people I asked you before, how many people are a little upset that you know books were destroyed? Well, you probably don't know this, but the books you would get at Barnes & Noble or Borders or any of those places you know, have a two, three month shelf life. Then most of them, well, they're usually sold to a remainder company. So you, Amina, buys the book from the publisher, 60 cents on the dollar, sells it for 70 cents on the dollar for one year. At the end of that year, those books are destroyed. Right, those books are pulled, those books are gone. Almost all the books that I destroyed, not all of them, were discards from the library where I work. That were all going to be thrown out anyway. They were all hardcovers from the 1950s with like, you know, racist ethno ethnographic data. Uh, things that no longer seem relevant Although some of them were my own books as well. But we venerate the book, right? We hold the book as this, as this object, and it is a robust technology. <coughs> 1450 is the Gutenberg printing press, right? But what did those first Bibles, those Gutenberg Bibles, look like? Well, they looked like illuminated hand-copied manuscripts. They were heavily illustrated and embellished. When a new technology is developed, it apes, it mimics the older technology. And we even saw that at the beginning of hypertext in kind of computer space. Only, even the Kindle, right, is a book here. But in the future, I don't think our narratives will look anything like books. And I tend to think it's a good thing. I'm not one of these people who wants to hold on to the book. And even if you do, even if you say, Damn it, I'm not going to read a Kindle on the toilet. I have to have a physical book. Right? I need to make sure that I have this thing. That's okay. You will die and your children will go on. It's like my father didn't want to wear a seatbelt. That's you being stupid. I'm going to wear a seatbelt. It doesn't matter what we think about it, right? Yes? You touched on this a little, but I'm hoping that you can talk maybe a bit about um, the development of some of the performative mm -hmm. aesthetics that you use. Part of it is out of my own boredom with readings. And I've occasionally, I bring in a lot of readers. I run a reading series. I run a, a yearly literary festival. And I have to admit that over the years, I'm occasionally disappointed. I'll bring in someone I'm really interested in hearing their work, and it's just horribly read. There's no sense of the performance. Now, some writers deliberately adopt that persona, mm -hmm. or the persona of non-being. You're never going to hear J.B. Salinger give a reading right, when he's still alive, that whole Thomas Pynchon. The idea is for those people not to be there and their work to be there. But I think, in a weird way, that does exactly the opposite. That makes them these larger-than-life figures, mm -hmm. right? For their absent, they are even more present. Mm -hmm. So one of the things for me is in my earlier sort of, you know, punk period where I'm screaming and screaming and screaming, I don't even know if I was doing that deliberately. The idea that mm -hmm. here was the work, 
It is not an iambic pentameter. It takes a lot of lung strength to sort of read these run-on sentences. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like, ooh, that's the way it came out. And I kind of like got a charge from that. Mm -hmm. In the same way, you know, the diggy pop. I was not cutting my own chest, but that same sort of feeling, right? Or someone spitting on the audience. But it's not necessarily out of disdain for the audience. Mm -hmm. It's about the tension yeah. in that public performance, which is the rope trick, right? Mm -hmm. But over the years, these things, my, my work evolving as it has, and my feelings about this as it has, I thought, well, I have a booming voice. I like to have fun. Why do readings need to be so serious? Why do they need to be so boring? I'm reading things that read well, for the most part, out loud. There are parts of Drain that I wouldn't read to you out loud. They take a different type of concentration, the way I'm performing blank for you. At AWP, Anna Joy and I gave a reading. This is the Association of Writing Programs for uh, our novels. And I dressed, I read from blank, but I dressed up as a mime, full white. <laughs> And I read from Glenn Beck's novel, you know, Glenn Beck. <laughs> it's called The Overton Window. He wrote it with four ghostwriters whose names are there. I just kind of excerpted these you know, odious descriptions of women that were in there. Like, I love that chicky. I wanted to get her number basically on that level. And I said, you could read that book, or you could read this book, a blank book. But earlier in the day, I walked around the giant warehouse of book tables dressed as a mom. I thought it would be fun. Yeah. You, right. Well, I was in disguise. <laughs> and in the area of the small presses, for the most part, people were cool. I did go up. People have tables with candies and chocolate on there. They would come up. And I would come up and pretend to eat their candies. <laughs> <laughs> I went up, there's this journal out of Washington, D.C. called Barrel House, and I know some of the people when I'm not in costume, but they didn't recognize me. And they have a wheel that you spin. You spin the wheel, and you win something. Like, you win $2 off Barrel House. So they're like, hey, mom, spin the wheel. And I you know, did it for pretend, and then I did it for real, and then I'm like, what did I, you know, saying, what did I win? And they're like, you won $3 off our latest issue, and I was, you know, I said, what everybody wants. I don't want your, your magazine, right? Give me something else. But as I then walked, into the further rooms where the more money presses, the big university presses had their booth there, no one would make eye contact. They saw somebody dressed as a mime coming and they thought that spells book trouble. But it was interesting the other reactions I got from people as well. I also, having a little bit of that, wanting to, you know, that little punk aesthetic, would see somebody and be like, you know, kind of walk up to them and try and do something to them. Um, but so some of this is fun, some of this, I guess, is to get my own rocks off, and some of it is to, to push it a little bit. Last week I did a reading with a writer named Lydia Yuknovich and someone named Chris Maza, and we sat in a kiddie pool. They were all about water. Train is about water, those two books. And we ended up pouring water on each other quite aggressively. I was in the pool. Chris Maza was in the pool first, and she didn't really want to get wet. She's a little more conservative than the other two people, and so we just poured it at her feet. And then I got in and read, and Lydia, the other writer, was supposed to, like, slowly, as I was reading, pour water on me. But within 10 seconds, she threw an entire bucket of water on me, and it's shocking, the coldness of that. You ever, like, go into a lake on a cold day? You're like, <gasps> takes your breath away. So what am I going to do to her? Well, then I got up on a chair, and I, like, water tortured her, and I got everyone in the audience to throw a cup on her at the same time. But I like that sense of endurance. It's endurance for you to sit here and listen, so it should be an endurance test for me to stand here and read. That's the rope. That's being out of breath. That's the water. That was probably much longer an answer than you wanted. Last question? Okay, oh, go ahead. Do you mind? Like, is that, or was that a one-time thing? You tell me. <laughs> Hold on, I have to get something in the basement. 
That's about the extent of it. All right, thank you very much. Books are here if you'd like to buy one or just check them out. Where's my...